Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gardet. It's Thursday, August 17th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The approval of a landmark gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy came with a catch. It's only available for kids between the ages of four and five. Our colleague Jason Mast joins us to explain how that has set in motion a frantic race to get children treated before their sixth birthdays. And times are tough for biotech startups. HSBC Managing Director Jonathan Norris joins us to discuss why so many private companies are facing financial bridges to nowhere. All that after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Shirley Leung. I'm a columnist for the Boston Globe. I want to tell you about a new podcast that I'm hosting. It's called Say More. On Say More, I'll be talking to the doers and thinkers behind the biggest ideas of our time. How business works, how cities thrive, politics, technology, culture. I want to bring you inside those conversations. Say More, a new podcast from Boston Globe Opinion. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. So before we get to that stuff, uh, Damien, uh, we're kind of in the dog days of August, not not a lot of biotech news, but uh, this week the FDA did approve uh, kind of a novel, a first treatment, I guess, for an ultra rare bone disease. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So on Wednesday, the FDA, as you say, um, approved the first medicine for a disease called FOP. I will not subject you to my pronunciation of what that acronym stands for, <laughs> um, but it is an ultra rare ailment in which basically due to a genetic mutation, the normal process for growing bone goes haywire. And patients who are born with this disease grow bone where it doesn't belong, really for lack of a better term, whether in response to even really minor injuries, or even if you live a life completely without bodily trauma, the disease progresses on its own, such that you know, a second skeleton is essentially growing in their bodies, which can lock limbs into place. Um, most people require the use of a wheelchair, um, if not in adolescence, then by their 20s. And the life expectancy is somewhere in the 50s because, you know, errant bone growth can constrict breathing and, and you know, shorten the life expectancy of people. So it's a, it's a really grim disease. Um, it's been understood, it's been studied because I think in part because it's so striking, um, by a really dedicated group of researchers over a number of decades who finally isolated the gene in question. And there has been this race to find new therapies for it um, over the past 15 to 20 years. So that all culminating in this first FDA approval, which is um, you know a huge milestone for patients and families affected by this. The drug in question um, is from the French drug company Ibsen, and it's an oral medication. It has a muddled data set, I think is one of the words that people often reach for. Um, they ran a study in which the drug did not meet its primary endpoint of preventing uh, more bone growth than in patients who received the drug than those on placebo. However, but, but however, on a post hoc analysis, which, you know, that tends to be at least a pink flag, if not an outright red one, in analyzing clinical trial data, it did seem to ha make a difference in terms of how much uh, new bone was formed in patients who got the drug versus placebo. Over the course of an FDA advisory committee meeting, you know, we heard from experts saying, in normal cases, we don't love post hoc analyses, but in this case, and the FDA itself agreed with this, the initial clinical trial design was maybe not ideal for this population. And when you factor in 
the rareness of the disease, it, it's thought to affect about a thousand people all over the world, um, the lack of any approved treatments, and the devastating nature of what going untreated looks like for FOP, that was enough for this drug to win approval. That's a really interesting situation. I mean, like 1,000 patients, we're talking an ultra rare disease group. So how are like how is the scientific community reacting to this approval given the kind of murkiness of the data but countered with the extreme patient need? What's the overall like takeaway so far? Yeah, I mean that that's very much it I think is that um, as is often the case whether in rare diseases or in much more common ones the first approved medicine is important by virtue of its firstness and maybe not necessarily by virtue of its overwhelming efficacy. So there is an understanding that this drug seems to work for some patients, not to reverse any of the bone that has been grown to that point, nor to really halt the progression of the disease, but just to slow that progression, which in itself is important. When you talk to the scientists in this world, I think they look at this drug as really like a first salvo in what is hopefully going to be a metronome of successes. There are other medicines in development that target different stages of the disease progression process such that if they prove to be safe and effective, there is a potential future in which a cocktail of medicines could be available for patients. If one doesn't work for a certain patient, there could be another or they could work in concert um, with each other. Among them is a treatment from Regeneron, which is now in phase three, that is kind of, it targets like one step upstream in the disease process as this Ibsen medicine that just won approval. And then one that a lot of people have a lot of optimism for is another medicine in development by Ibsen. They licensed it from uh, Blueprint Medicines, which targets the exact genetic mutation that causes this disease. So thus it's upstream of both of the drugs we've talked about before. That's in phase two. If that drug proves to be as effective as it, you know, at least on paper ought to be, then in the next, I don't know, five, six, maybe even decade, the treatment paradigm for FOP will be radically changed from, you know, before Wednesday, at least in the United States, there were no medicines. There could be as many as three by the end of the decade. And so um, talking to scientists, it's a time of great optimism, but there is an understanding that this is just the first step. And Damien, uh, you know it in the story you wrote about this uh, this week, the, the medicine from Ibsen uh, costs uh, about $624,000 a year for the average patient. That's obviously a lot of money uh, that you know insurance companies will ultimately have to pay. I wonder, is there any effort or is there any requirement to to further confirm the benefit of this of this medicine? That's a great question. And we've seen a lot of uh, rare disease drug approvals where there is this condition that an ongoing placebo-controlled study be positive for it to remain on the market. In this case, there is an ongoing open-label uh, extension study of this drug from Ibsen, but this is prob- this is all of the controlled placebo-controlled data we're going to get on this drug. And I think the regulatory flexibility that the decision demonstrates is really a reflection of the, the ultra rarity of, of this disease and the, the severity of this disease. And a lot of the patient advocacy, the uh, FDA advisory committee meeting in June, um, you know, as you might imagine from, from how severe this disease is, was an emotional affair. And the families involved in FOP are very, very well versed on, on how this works and well steeped in the literature and well connected with, with the many uh, investigators of these trials. This being a rare disease, it's a relatively small community. And I think they're the FDA kind of heard them loud and clear as to as to what was demanded here. So 
this is how it's going to be. Back in June, the FDA approved the first gene therapy for boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It was a landmark decision, somewhat controversial, but also one that came with a compromise. Based on the data in hand, the FDA only cleared the one-time therapy for boys with Duchenne who were four and five years old. That age limitation triggered a cruel countdown clock for families of the boys just under six, forcing them to race for treatment and insurance payment before birthdays made them ineligible. Some of the families have been able to get access, while others, sadly, have not. Our stat colleague, Jason Mast, has been reporting on this harrowing story and joins us to discuss it. Jason, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here. So, Jason, the gene therapy we're talking about is Elevitis, and it's made by Sarepta Therapeutics. Your story opens with a, a boy named Hiram who was able to receive Elevitis one day before he turned six. Tell us about him. Yeah, so... Um, Hiram was diagnosed um, relatively early for DMD patients around the age of two, thanks to a particular um, medical uh, journey that this family had with another pregnancy. Hiram, um, like most kids with Duchenne, had some deficits, but there's not really a lot of symptoms that appear um, early on in the disease. Um, And there aren't really also a, a lot of treatments available for most um, kids, especially um, especially early on. Um, and his family had initially actually tried to, or at least talked to their doctor about getting him in one of the trials for this therapy. Um, but the trials to get the the race to sort of get into these trials was very competitive, um, and for some, there's very stringent rules about being in these studies. And so he was deemed ineligible. And so his mom assumed that he would be ineligible altogether for the for the drug. Um, and then on July 12th, um, sort of a few weeks after the drug was officially approved, um, the mom gets a call from the doctor basically saying, you'd be a perfect fit. Um, we would love to get Hiram this drug. It's not a cure, but it could be really helpful for him. But it has to be in the next three weeks because He's going to turn six very soon, and so we need to do everything possible to get him um, dosed uh, as soon as humanly possible. Um, and so for the hospital, for them, it was then sort of a three-week race to get him in for testing, make sure he's eligible for the therapy. has nothing that would make him, that would rule him out. There's a couple different things that can do that and get insurance to sort of come through and approve paying for this $3.2 million drug um, and have the FDA sign off on the manufacturing for this drug. All these different sort of various steps that need to be done for a drug like this. Um, and it tr- and also gotten started on the treatment that has to be, the steroids have to be given two weeks before. So you have to sort of know already that you're going to get this even well in advance. Um, and they were ultimately able to get him dosed basically a day before he turned six, uh, really just in the nick of time. So speaking of that approval, physicians you spoke to seem to understand the age restriction based on the clinical data, but also pointed out that it can be somewhat arbitrary. How did the FDA come to restrict the approval to just boys aged four and five? Yeah, so it was really a compromise um, position from the head of the FDA's biologics division, Peter Marks, um, who, whose own reviewers wanted to reject this drug entirely. The only placebo 
controlled trial that they ran failed. Um, there were all these other questions about the drug. Um, there was skepticism within the agency about Schechter's commitment to do follow-on studies given their previous track record with uh, some prior some prior drugs where they were not the fastest, let's say, to um, complete clinical studies. Um, and basically, Marx looked at the data and said, there's... For four and five-year-olds, we are seeing a benefit in this particular study. It does seem to really be helping them. And so while Streptofin finishes this larger study, let's make it available for these kids, um, provide some access, waiting, will lose even more muscle, um, even if it's just a few months. Um, and so let's get this drug to them as soon as possible. Um, and that made some sense. It was based on the data. There is some, there is good reason to think that the earlier you give this, the better the more effective it's going to be and the and the safer it's going to be. Um, conversely, and this is actually, it's a problem with, um, I think a lot of, not a lot of drugs, but with with drugs that, any drug that has sort of an, an age cap or some sort of limiting factor, the edges become really blurry because it's, it's not as if there's some fundamental difference that happens to someone when they turn six where they become a pumpkin, I guess, and, and, and aren't able to be treated with this drug. Um, and so, and so, there's there's both a data drivenness of this, but there's also an arbitrariness on the borders of, well, you are now ineligible, but you haven't really changed. Um, and so, what do we what do we do about that? Yeah, I mean, it's not like anybody turns six and you know suddenly poof, there's a huge monumental change versus the day before. But the scenario has created this this race against the clock that you lay out really well in the story. How much, if at all, were physicians in families and and kind of, you know, the people actually involved in using this drug anticipating that when this drug was in front of the FDA? Yeah, I mean, so the doctors who were who were following this um, were anticipating something that arguably could have actually been much more hectic and much um much more, um, much more of a Hunger Games esque scenario of, of sort of racing to get this drug. Where um, if this was approved for all originally started, I wanted to do all ambulatory patients. If it was approved for that wide group, then they basically, basically hospitals, the sort of few dozen centers that are equipped to do this kind of thing, would have been inundated with people, and they were talking about doing lotteries and how do you prioritize and do you do the oldest patients first or the youngest patients first? Um, and so they were expecting something um, and something very hectic. Um, but this, the exact thing that it became was very different, where it was no longer how do we deal with this sort of this 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 throng of people who need and want this therapy. It was how do we deal with this small handful of people who need and want this therapy and like will not be eligible for it in two weeks. Um, and and some patients got it, and some patients um, their birthday was just just too soon, or the insurance was not being cooperative in time. So Jason, tell us about those families. I mean, again, you, you, we, we talked about Hiram, uh, you know, a boy who fortunately was able to get the treatment in time. And you did speak to some families uh, of boys who, who were not able to get access to it. T tell us about them. Yeah. So there were two different families profiled in, in this um, piece besides um, Hiram's, Hiram's family. Um, one was um, this mom and her son in um, Los Angeles, or, or I guess actually right outside of LA. Like the boy's name is Damon. His birthday was 
um, July 7th. Um, and the mom was very excited to get to get this drug for him. Um, he's on one of the other approved uh, DMD drugs, but it's only modestly effective. Um, it requires you to get a five-year-old boy to sit in a chair for an hour while you infuse the therapy into him. And sometimes the five-year-old boy is cooperative for that. And sometimes he's not. And, and, it, and it leads to all these bruises and bandages on his arms. Um, so really excited to get this therapy that would sort of be a one-time thing and, and, and possibly really help him. Then in May, um, Srept is sort of put out this unusual announcement where they said, look, we're probably going to get approval on this drug, but it's only going to be for, for four and five-year-olds. And initially, Sarepta sort of assured the doctor that not necessarily that they would get it, but they were trying to do everything possible to get this drug for boys like uh, Damon as fast as possible. And then I think it was basically the day of or the day before, so maybe a week before, um, the approval came. They told her, the doctor, that it would just not be possible because his birthday was the 7th. Uh, so two weeks, basically, after the approval um, came. And what it turned out to be the case was that the um, the FDA had to sort of sign off on the manufacturing in time. Um, and that, was, that, that would not happen for another three weeks. And so they were not able to get this and, and they had to sort of break the news to the family um, who was understandably upset, but also, you know, I think optimistic because this is all of this news of, of look, there's a treatment, look, it, they might expand the approval in a few months. That is all so much better than what most of these families were told when they were first diagnosed and like there was basically nothing out there. Hey, uh, just a follow-up question, Jason. You know, we talked about how you know nothing really magically changes with these boys when they, you know, when they go from being five-year-olds to six-year-olds. Um, is there any like cushion period? I'm mean, like, is there any sort of period where you know, sort of reasonable people say, well, yeah, we know that, and so you know, if you are you know, six years old, you know, by one or two day a week, like you could still be eligible, or is it really just like literally like this hard, you know? line there between five and six. And and if you're on the wrong side of it, you, you know, you, you just can't get access to it. In the FDA approval, there's not, um, there is no like wiggle room of, there's no, there's no wiggle room. It's, it's, this is approved for four and five-year-olds. That's what the label says. Conversely, lots of drugs are given off label all the time. Um, and so in theory, you could imagine a doctor um, prescribing this for someone off-label, um, sort of outside of that window. And basically what I was told was, depending on the physician, but basically a physician like the one we profiled in LA would be a little reluctant for such a complex, new, and with potential serious side effects therapy um, to prescribe such a therapy off of its label um, so soon and with so little experience using this drug. Um, and probably more pressingly, insurers, payers, Medicaid are unlikely to cover an off-label drug. Off-label drugs, like getting insurance approval for it, is, is always a, a massive battle. And for a therapy that costs $3.2 million, um, it was unlikely to actually get coverage for it. Um, so it's not necessarily impossible, I think, um, but it's pretty unlikely that you're going to be able to, to get outside of that exact clear cutoff. Sarepta wants to expand the the Elvitis approval to include older boys, you know, boys six and above. 
what's the status of that? What is the the ultimate plan and potential timeline? There is currently a phase three study ongoing, randomized, controlled, placebo, um, that has over 100 patients in it, um, and that uh, um, Srepta's executives have assured analysts is very well-powered to basically detect any difference um, that will um, occur between the placebo group and the um, treatment arm. Um, and presume that is scheduled basically for um, a readout sometime in Q4. Um, I don't think we know exactly when it's going to come. There's... Um, there's it always sort of takes some time to analyze the data after it comes in. Um, but sometime before the end of this year, we're going to get an answer as to how well this drug works. There's there's there will be a lot of outstanding questions after that data comes in, depending on what the data look like. Um, Sarepta indicated on their call recently, I believe, that they wanted to then use that data to get approval for basically everyone with DMD. Um I think advocates think that's pretty unlikely to happen, but depending on the data, you could see both um, a uh, finalized approval for four and five-year-olds, um, as well as hopefully an expanded approval um, if the data look good for six and seven-year-olds and, and maybe eight, nine, ten older boys who are sort of under the original vision that Srepta had uh, come to the FDA with over a year ago. I have a strong sense, Jason, that you and I will be writing a story about, about those data. You don't say it. And all the implications therein. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been nearly six months since Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. And in that time, there have been not only huge shifts at that bank, but also at um, HSBC, a competitor that scooped up SVB's UK business and hired um, dozens of its startup bankers. HSBC just published its first healthcare venture report, which detailed how the number of new biopharma startups that were able to secure their first check dropped by half as investors seemed to circle their wagons and focus time and money on their existing portfolio companies. HSBC Managing Director John Norris joins us to discuss the state of startup banking and the need for new startups to present the perfect term sheet. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So to dive right in, it, it seems like it's been really quite a year, not only for HSBC, but I mean, you know, you personally were kind of part of this wave of bankers that uh, shifted, you know, earlier this year to different locales, you know, leaving SVB. I I'm really curious, like, what have those days, you know, what were those days right after the crisis like for you? And, you know, what has been happening on the back end, like in the months since? Yeah, thanks. Um, it's been quite a roller coaster uh, this year. I would say, you know, right, right after after things happened, I think, you know, the one the one thing that was really most impressive and and just uh, wonderful to me was the the fact that so many CEOs and investors reached out to to me just to check to see how I was doing and and I know my colleagues felt the same way. Uh, it was a terrible situation to, to happen and you know tough for the ecosystem. So it was really was it was it was heartwarming to to know that we had all these relationships. Uh, obviously, it was a difficult situation as well, but. You know, this really presented a, a really unique opportunity for uh, a group of folks to sort of start something new. And that's really what we're excited about at HSBC, because, 
you know, HSBC has been around for a long time, obviously, and just an amazing large international bank. Uh, but this gave them the opportunity to really connect with the innovation ecosystems. Uh, but yeah, it's been it's been a roller coaster, but it's great to actually have a smile on my face and talk about good things versus what we saw in uh, in March. So happy to be here. So, John, tell us a little bit more about uh, HSBC's strategy moving forward. I wonder how much uh, you know, how much of the playbook you carry over from your SVB days and or maybe, you're, you, you know, based on what happened there, you're going to try something new. Yeah, I think. Um, thanks, Adam. Um, you know, really, the, the focus with with our group is really to support the innovation ecosystem. You know, entrepreneurs and investors, we're going to do things that are very similar to what we've done in the past. And that really starts with super high touch service. You know, somebody, you, you know, these early stage companies have really small finance teams if they have any at all. So they need to have someone they can call who can pick up the phone, help them through their operational stuff. But on the other side, you know, where a lot of the value add that we added was over and above the commercial banking and the debt. It was, you know, what's going on in the, in the ecosystem? What's going on with your network? How are deals being done? What are valuations look like? Who are the investors that are out there? So it's really, we sort of approach things in a holistic way. If we can add value to the whole ecosystem uh, on the, you know, on the front end with the banking and operations and the debt, et cetera, but on the back end with helping their company be smart in terms of how they make decisions, then that's really what we're looking to do. So a very similar playbook to what we've done in the past. But what's great about it is we have now the eighth biggest bank in the world as, as you know, as our home and with a great international presence. So it does give us a little bit more of an edge than, than we've had in the past. Speaking of that ecosystem, um, you know, and the the data that we mentioned earlier that you guys put out this week in that report, you talk about how startups seem to need to have the quote unquote perfect term sheet to get a deal done with new investors. What does that mean? Yeah, I think it's a, the the situation that we have right now in the ecosystem is is a tough one. Um, what we saw in 2022 was you know because of 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 the 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 fall in the in the public market. And just a difficult financing time, we saw a lot of companies have to secure that insider round instead of going and finding a new lead to, to invest. And really, the, it, it was a fear of, you know, one, you know, where are valuations going to go? It's very hard for a new investor to value a company because they're trying to make a return, right? And so they have to figure out what are the comps that I'm looking at that factor into making that investment at that valuation. So we found a lot of insider rounds happening in 2022, and that continued into the first half of this year. And I think you know, there's also a focus on where is the data? And I think earlier in 2020 and 2021, you saw so many preclinical companies get funded on the early stage. But frankly, a lot of these preclinical and phase one companies went public. And so there was this iteration and this this playbook that you do that Series A round, the crossover investors come in, and then you go public. And a lot of these companies were really early stage. And I feel like that's the market shifted a little bit on that. And so now, you know, Series B means, you know, B in the clinic for the for the most part. And so there's really a focus on making sure that the capital that you raise gets you to a value inflection point. And that value inflection point has changed from what we saw in 2020 and 2021. So really to get that, that to be perfect, you know, means you have to have 
really interesting, you know, underlying mechanism of action. You know, if you have data, that's even better. And you have to have, you know, the management team that has sort of been there and done that. And that sort of equals the perfect opportunity to, to raise new money in this market. Not to say other folks can't. It's just very, very difficult because investors, even though they have a lot of capital, are really slow playing their investment uh, pace. And it's because they can. They want to make sure they're taking their time. They're understanding where valuations are, but they can really dig in and do that deep diligence where I think the fear of missing out and doing deals much more quickly was really the name of the game in 2020 and 2021. Yeah, you also raised in the report this question of, you know, the fact that so many rounds being led and done by insiders and, you know, previous investors, um, you know, a lot of that is a mechanism of the fact that crossover investors, you know, the, the folks who would traditionally do a Series C or a Series D or sometimes a B, you know, in those really um, hype-filled, frothy, you know, 2020 days, mm-hmm. um, have the crossovers have kind of left the arena. And you you kind of raise the question whether these insider rounds are bridges to nowhere. Like, are, is that round going to be able to bridge a company to IPO? What do you think? Are we are we at the bottom of this? Have we reached a stage where things are going to look up from here? You know, the the optimistic uh, part of me wants to say yes, but the realistic part of me says there's still some pain to be to be had. Um, I think the second half of this year is going to be a really hard one. Uh, when when I think about what the the overall private market and biotech sort of looks like it feels like the top 15% of deals will always be able to find a new investor most of those deals at step ups and those are sort of you know again your top 15% of deals the next 25 to 30% are going to be ones that are going to have to relook at valuation it may be a little bit harder but they'll find new investors but frankly i think the bottom 50% of deals are really in trouble because they've maybe already done their insider round, you know, and and typically inside syndicates only like to do one insider round. They don't like to keep uh, doing inside rounds. So these folks are really at the the precipice of we really need to find a new investor. New investors are doing deals, but they're also dealing with their own pipeline of portfolio companies and trying to get them funded. So they're very focused and the time that they have to allocate to do new deals, you know, is small, but the amount of time that they can do due diligence is long because again, the fear of missing out is gone. So I think the bottom 50% are really going to be in trouble. A number of them will be able to raise at significant step downs, but I think there's a lot of other companies that are going to have to think about, you know, um, a, a tougher M&A or maybe consolidation. And that's also a function of the froth that we saw in 2020 and 2021, where we just saw way more companies funded than we had in the past. And so that all is kind of coming to a head, I think, over the next half a year and then into early 2024. So optimistically, I'd love to say that we're you know on the other side of this. But realistically, I think there's there's still some more pain to be had. Yeah, John, I want to ask you a little bit more about consolidation because I was thinking about that too. And, you know, you see, I spent a lot, most of my time looking at public companies. Uh, and, you know, we've seen just a waves of public companies either, you know, reducing headcount, restructuring, uh, you know, merging uh, into other companies. 
what do you see? What's what's your crystal ball look like in terms of these companies that you know? May, look, the science, some of the science may still be sound, but you know, for for whatever reason, uh, from a financial perspective, um, they have to look elsewhere. They have to figure out how to, you know, what to do. Where do you see that going in the next year or so? Yeah, I think you know consolidation tends to be really hard in the private market, uh, especially if if you're thinking about two tougher uh, companies trying to figure out a way to merge together. And if you don't have commonality with with investors, it just makes it really hard because the answer is like, well, what does this look like going forward? But I do feel like you know that is coming. There's going to be a lot of hard decisions. I think investors. Um, the good thing about investors and when you look at who the top uh, most active investors are in the market over the last three or four or five years, they're all pretty veteran folks. And these folks understand the cyclicality of the world. They're certainly not happy to have to think about a reset in valuation for their companies, but they're going to support the companies where they really think the technology is is exciting. I think where the hardest decisions might be are really interesting technology that's still a couple years away from the clinic. Because, you know, in the past, you know, a couple years away from the clinic could still be a crossover 80 million, $100 million round. Uh, nowadays, I think that's a lot more challenging. You still see some of these large preclinicals deals getting done, but the the majority of them uh, are, are, you know, getting pressure to advance assets in the clinic and have data. And so I think there's going to be some some sticky situations where some really interesting technologies, you know, end up getting left uh, by the by the by the side of the road just from the unfortunate part of the fact that it's such a difficult financing environment. And that's that's a real shame. So I think there is going to be consolidation. It's always a tricky game on the private side. Uh, but yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of those uh, announcements start to come out. Uh, later in this half of the year. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like. And uh, when you look at your bank account, does it look like a bridge to nowhere? You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.